Welcome to Her Skin, a podcast about the minority experience. I'm Abby Chinaya. A year ago, I started a photography series called Light Skin, Dark Skin, following the stories of brown women and their experiences with colorism. Now I'm taking things a step further. I'm having discussions about diversity, skin color, race, inclusivity, and everything in between. Today, joining me on Her Skin is Helen Young. Helen is a writer, feminist, and zine maker based in Auckland. She's a firm believer in accessibility and making artistic practices understandable to the masses. In 2017, she founded Migrant Zine Collective with the aim to amplify the voices of migrants in Aotearoa, New Zealand. More recently, Helen started the Asian Feminist Project, a community-based research project aiming to create feminist conversations with Asian women in digital spaces. So I feel like there's way more credits to your name that I've missed, but this is why I wanted to have you on the podcast, because you are doing so many incredible things, Helen, and I'm so glad that you're here today. Yeah, I'm really excited to be part of this. I'm really enjoying doing it. Yeah, I've been listening to the episodes in lockdown and stuff as well, so it's been really exciting and I really enjoy it. Oh, thank you so much for listening. Well, you know, Migrant Zine Collective was so helpful for Light Skin, Dark Skin, and your platform really elevated the whole series for me, and I'm so grateful to you and Jasmine for what you've done. And I was always curious to know how you started Migrant Zine Collective and how you got it to the amazing platform it is today. Yeah, so um, I started Migrant Zine Collective in 2017 because um, I was working, I was doing a lot of community work and I was, um, I guess I was interested in um, activism, feminism and community organizing and um, I guess that a lot of my practice revolves around like creative work as well so zines were like quite the perfect medium to do that so I guess I started Migrant Zine Collective because I noticed there wasn't a space for migrants of colour to voice their experiences of being in diaspora and um, yeah I just um, wanted to do something where people could create things and just um, talk about topics as well. And how did you get the zines out there from when you started doing them to being like, hey, look, I have these amazing zines and ideas. Come join me. Yeah, so the first um, zine I made was um, Gen M, and that's named by Jasmine as well. It's um, short for Generation Migrant, and that collects... I collected the stories of um, a few of my friends in Auckland and... Yeah, that was kind of how I started, and I guess I just um, I started selling that at Zinefest, and it had a it had really good feedback as well with people in the community saying like, oh, these stories I really re- related to these stories, and um, from there I was just like, yeah, I should make more so people can read stories that they can actually relate to, as opposed to in mainstream media where. Um, our stories are often, you know, underrepresented or um, it's not based on our own narratives and it's what people see of us. Yeah. In terms of the first zine I made as well, Gen M, um, it was really important that, um, like, I wouldn't be able to do it without um, Mellow Yellow and Shakti Youth and those are both groups that I guess I was working with and Mellow Yellow is a um, zine collective or like distro for um, Asian feminists in Aotearoa 
and I was also a volunteer at Shakti Youth at the time and um, I guess that is a group of young people from Asian, African and Middle Eastern backgrounds and um, it was a group that was passionate about social justice and building towards violence-free futures and yeah I was um, an undergrad at the time and connecting with these people just really um, opened my eyes to the different narratives and ways we could approach things and that was really important towards the launch of my first zine as well and the many to come as well yeah that's amazing and do you still work with Mellow Yellow and Shakti Youth through um, Migrant Zine Collective? No not so much anymore I'm just focusing on developing Migrant Zine Collective right now um, with some other organizers and yeah, I'm trying to focus more on, um, I guess, facilitating more so than um, on the ground activist work at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, because I always think about what goes into a brand and what you're doing. And when it came to like creating the website and stuff and getting that up and running and the social media, was that, that would have been a lot of work. Were you and Jasmine both doing it just alone or did you have external help? Um, I guess in terms of um, social media and all that, um, it's mostly just run by me. I make the website and um, um, like the graphics and everything that we post. And then Jasmine does more of the background organizing work, like admin and um, things like that with facilitating workshops. So yeah, um, I guess like a lot of people are surprised when I tell them I run like three different social media accounts and... Um, that's like a central part of my work as well and the amount of thought that goes into running social media is crazy yeah that's a lot of work yeah that's a that's a lot of juggling and kudos to you and the zines I love how full of art they are and they're beautiful and they're vibrant as vibrant as you want it to be and as storytelling heavy as you want it to be right and I know you're a self-thought artist and I wanted to know when did you know art would be your calling? Since I was young, I was really, I loved reading and picture books. And um, I guess growing up in a migrant family as well, we migrated to from Hong Kong to um, Auckland. And then the shore was, um, I don't know, it was quite isolated, I guess. And my mum and I were at home most of the time. Um, and she was looking after me and, you know, there was nothing to do really. Um, and we ended up doing a lot of arts and crafts at home and drawing. And that was kind of where my interests developed as well. Um, and then when I was older, she started, um, I guess, sending me to a community art center to do um, pottery and painting. And I've done that for around, I guess, six or seven years. So that's where my interests in art spiked and I always loved how I guess accessible it was with like um the people around me and things like that as well that's really interesting because I think about um my upbringing in Malaysia and I don't think my parents could have even dreamed that I would be doing what I'm doing now because it was always well I was in law school for a while yeah and then I dropped out and then I got a marketing degree and now I do photography and a podcast. And I know you're completing your Masters of Communication Studies. Was what you are studying now a choice? And did you have any familial pressure to do something else? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, even like going back to my mum sending me to the community art school and things like that, I think it was more seen as a hobby for me or like, you know, to develop interests out of a proper career as like many Asian parents would view it. And, you know, you spoke about law school and I also did law. Yeah, it was just not for me. But um, yeah, I guess um, going back to drawing and being an artist as well, I guess um, illustrating was a way for me to um, kind of combat my loneliness in high school or just being isolated from my peers because um, I went to a very, um, I guess, white-dominated high school. And um, yeah, it was really tough um, and... Yeah, I felt really alienated and I felt that um, the only kind of cultural expression I could have was through my illustrations and artwork, like, you know, in my private journals or like sketchbooks. And then, you know, I had to put on something else if, um, I guess, in front of my peers. Yeah. But also in terms of the familial pressure, um, definitely a lot of pressure and conflict growing up um, in a, like, traditional um, Chinese family. Um, My parents wanted me to... I actually had plans to get out of high school and go to Vic to do um, graphic design, but my parents were just like, we don't want you moving by yourself, and they were just like, "Um, you know, maybe we can move with you to Wellington while you do your degree, and I was just like, no, it's okay, I'll just stay in Auckland. Um, and I ended up, um, going into, I guess it was a middle ground. Um, they were just like, if you do a Bachelor of Arts, then you'll have to do law with it. And that's what we agreed to. Um, maybe you're familiar with that too. I'm nodding my head, guys, because I can fully relate. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, a lot of tension, a lot of arguments. Um, but yeah, I ended up doing that, doing law, and it just wasn't for me. I just um, couldn't, it just really conflicted with my values, and yeah, I felt um, like it wasn't good for my mental health as well. Um, And yeah, I ended up um, going through with my Bachelor of Arts, and I did politics and international relations and history as well. Um, And that was just, um, I guess it's not creative work or graphic design, but that was, um, I really enjoyed the writing elements of it and just being critical. And I think that really led me down the path to um, what I'm doing now. But in saying that, my family still, you know, have a lot of views, um, negative views towards what I do. And I always feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, And... Yeah, I guess I always feel like I'm not doing something proper or like a proper career because I'm doing creative work or activist work and that's not traditionally viewed by our communities as work. I think the only way I got away with having a marketing degree in the end was because I was living here and mum and dad were in Malaysia. So when I dropped out of law school, I tried accounting for a while because dad's an accountant and then... When I actually started my marketing degree, I didn't tell them till yeah. way later. Even when I applied for my master's, I think I like um, applied for it first, and I was just like, "Yeah, I think I'll tell them like after if I get accepted and things like that as well." But even doing my master's, I felt like um, at one point I felt like it was because 
Um, I wasn't sure whether I was fitting in or like ticking the boxes they wanted. So I was like, maybe I'll do more study to, you know, um, I guess fulfill what they want as well. And yeah, it turned out to be really good, obviously, because now I have these projects on hand and I'm really proud of them. But yeah, definitely still a lot of pressure from them to, um, you know, things like um, having a partner, looking towards like a nuclear family and um, yeah, things like, um, I definitely feel that pressure from my family or even like finding a full-time job, a proper job, that's what they call it. Mm. Um, and to this day, I get messages from, like, my family overseas saying, like, are you sure you don't want to do, like, a, I don't know, PhD in marketing, or you don't want to consider business school, or, like, maybe you should come work for, like, one of the, um, firms in Hong Kong. <laughs> um, I had a phone call with my grandma yesterday, and, um... Is grandma here? No. Grandma is in Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. But yeah, she's been unwell during um, this period of time, this whole year, and we've been really worried because we can't go back. But anyways, um, I thought it was, um, you know, sad, like bittersweet as well that I was talking to her. And she was, she's always just like, don't work so hard. You don't need to work so hard. And it kind of ties into, um, I guess, our conversation with like how family perceive our careers. She's always telling me, don't work so hard. Um, and, you know, she was, um, she's been, like, I guess really sad that she hasn't been able to go out from, like, COVID and things like that, and she was just, like, she also mentioned to me that, um, randomly that when she was younger she had no opportunities to go to university, um, because she was a girl and her family thought that, um, yeah, she, she just didn't need to study because that wasn't her role. And it just made me kind of reflect when you, um, when I read your questions yesterday and, um, yeah, just reflect on the fact that I guess I'm the first generation, like, um, first generation migrant woman, um, to go to university in my family. And that's really central to, you know, upon reflection to my degree and my relationship with my family. Mum and dad are in New Zealand with you. Do you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. So when did they come to New Zealand and what was that family journey like moving here? Um, I actually have no memory of it because I was only 10 months and we migrated here in um, 1996. Yeah. Um, Because I'm a December baby. So ah. yeah. Um... (laughs) Yeah, we migrated here from Hong Kong and um, they, I guess they didn't know where, they they just picked a house in Hong Kong and then we just moved here with um, our things and that was also because of, I guess, um, the political climate in Hong Kong at the time. Um, But yeah, there were a lot of Hong Kong families moving um, because of that Um, and yeah, I guess um, when they moved here, we were one of the few Chinese families in the area, if not the only, because they were still developing the area where we um, were living. And if we, if I go back and look at like baby photos as well, there's just like, um, it's just like empty and there's like still the fields and stuff that were on the shore, you know. And now it's obviously a more like, there's a lot of like Asian supermarkets and restaurants and all that. Um, and 
I guess, but when they moved, it was very isolating for them because um, there was no one around until some Hong Kong families moved into the area too. Yeah. And did they come to New Zealand, the choice of country, was it from word of mouth that New Zealand is a really nice place to move to and we'll go there? Or did they just, were they already planning on coming to New Zealand? Um, I guess there were some plans of um, coming to New Zealand, um, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. I think um, just because of the like the feeling of like um, the political climate and like kind of just the mm, I guess um, feeling like displaced and things like that just really pressured them to move during that time, and a lot of families as well. Yeah. Do they talk about what it was like integrating into New Zealand society in 96? Um, I'm not sure if I would say that they integrated, really. Um, they've, we've been, I guess they don't, um, they retired when they um, moved here, and then it's just been more of like an insulated thing where they spent, they've spent time raising me, and then um, they've met Hong Kong families, and we've just kept in touch with those um, those families, and we've built a community around that. And then, yeah, I guess they go to like things like Yum Cha and all that and the Asian supermarket, but they they barely have to like, I guess, speak English and on a daily basis because they just spend a lot of time at home with each other and then um, with their friends just going to Yum Cha. So there's not much of an exposure or like integration as much as um, I guess other migrants would experience when if they worked here yeah yeah because my the last time my parents came here was three years ago and obviously when mum and dad were living in Christchurch it was a very different world for them especially being in Christchurch and mum because my pantry I love cooking for instance I have muraku for you guys here today but um mum looked in the pantry and she said you have more spices and all the like rices and stuff and that she would have in Malaysia and she said this is incredible she's so proud of my pantry and what I've got in there because she said you know back then it was really hard to find a lot of these things and just with the Asian supermarket. My parents mentioned like when they first when as I was growing up in like preschool and primary we would have to drive out to the city to have yum cha because there weren't any um, Chinese restaurants on the shore yet and then even like getting groceries um, my parents went to New Gumsan um, where Mercury Plaza was so sad um, and yeah there were just weren't um, supermarkets like Taiping and all that um across Auckland yet yeah like I even now when I go to Taiping I'm so grateful that I can get all the curry powders and the Malaysian curry powders and stuff you know because it's different to what they've got for instance in Sandringham yeah but it's good having all these options and I've got a nice pantry full of all the spices yeah and even the availability of like um Asian vegetables as well it's amazing nowadays that we have things like people growing their own bittermelon and like um eggplants and you know, we don't just have to rely on, like, um, white produce. I love bitter yeah. melon. Are we talking about the same one? The, um, yeah, yeah. yeah the... I, I know the Tamil name for it, but the English yeah. bitter melon. Oh, I love frying that. Oh, it's so good. And um, you talked about how you were one of the few Chinese kids at school on the shore when you were growing up. And I wanted to know, like, what particular experiences growing up stuck with you that made you feel other? 
Um, I guess I've been reflecting on this a lot um, recently during lockdown as well with like going through making zines and things like that. Um, what made me feel other was not so much, I guess, of course I got bullied and, um, you know, all the common narratives we hear, but I felt other through my mum as well. And she helped, she was a helper for a lot of school trips and things like that. And, um, I guess kids were just nasty to her. Um, and they would, um, make fun of her Cantonese accent when she would tell them, don't do this. Um, they would say like, you know, the classic Ching Chong kind of narrative. Um, and yeah, they just really, you know, they were really mean to her and she laughed it off. And I know maybe she didn't just like register that she was being made fun of. And I guess that was really heartbreaking for me growing up, um, just seeing how kids could treat me if I didn't speak, um, you know, if I didn't try to fit in. And that kind of just, um, that made me feel like I was different and my family was different. And um, yeah, I just felt so isolated because of those instances. I'm so sorry that happened, Helen. That's yeah. really sad. Did it evoke anger in you when you would see your mum face this kind of discrimination? Yeah, definitely. I guess um, a lot of my work, I have a lot of um, pent up anger from like my high school experiences and um, just like experiences my parents have faced. Um, and yeah, I would say that like anger has driven a lot of my work in wanting to resist these like structures that um, define us as well, which is why um, I guess I really love um, making zines and just hearing other people's stories that are, um, you know, raw and unedited. Do you think you've also inherited that trauma from what your mother experienced? Um, I'm not sure if I've... Um, yeah, I would say potentially, but also um, my parents were more so the... I guess you. it was interesting that you mentioned how your parents said you should become a lawyer to, um, you know, kind of the idea of get somewhere to prove that you're worth belonging in, like, white society. And I kind of... Um, yeah, I feel like my parents told me to like suck it up in many instances when I was experiencing these things which um you know also stems from the idea that um you know we don't belong in like on someone else's um land you know stolen land <laughs> um and yeah I guess like a lot of that defined um a lot of that suppressed my feelings of like racism growing up and I just didn't know what to do with it because I had no one to share it with. I had not many like, um, um, you know, friends that were people of colour and a lot of that, you know, pent up trauma was just, you know, it just exploded when I got to uni and I was like, I'm finally free to do something about this and like I deleted all my racist friends and, you know, I completely left that circle of like whiteness and I feel like I'm much happier now and I'm not bound by like um you know certain ways I act or like just like stories yeah I like the term belonging and I'm always thinking about it where do I belong and I guess what 
belonging means. And do you feel like you belong in New Zealand society? If I were to think of it, for instance, like, do I belong in New Zealand society? Um, I feel like my answer would be no. Yeah, I think my answer would be no, too. I would say that I don't want to, and I kind of want to reject belonging in, like, a like Pākehā-dominated um, New Zealand society, you know, I want to... I think it's important that our belonging leans towards, like, knowing that we're living on stolen land and, you know, building meaningful relationships with um, Māori communities as well, and that's really important to find, I guess, our sense of self. Running my um, master's project, which we're talking about later, um, you know, a lot of themes of like belonging came up um, with participants. Um, a lot of, um, I guess, the answers came up with like ideas of belonging, not belonging. Um, and yeah, I found that I was surprised that so many, um, I guess, Asian women had the same experiences as me of. Um, just feeling like we're, you know, we can be both, like, um, quiet but angry and, you know, there were just, um, I did a lot of, um, identity-based exercises and, um, a lot of these showed that, um, you know, people, I thought it was interesting that people experience, like, two polar opposites of, like, personality traits or, like, characters as well, like, you know, um, I feel like I'm very, a very quiet person but then I'm also expressive and loud and you know I think that all defines our um kind of this hyphenated identity of like being um you know children of migrants or like um just growing up in diaspora it's um important to acknowledge but then I think about for instance my dad and how he brought us up he did bring us up to be more outspoken and because we were always my sister and I when I say we, um, we're always the very outspoken westernized kids in the family. And we talked more than others, but we didn't talk that much really until for like, like later now where I would say I'm a lot more vocal about things. So it's funny, isn't it? How your communities can really influence who you become and how do you undo that? Yeah, I definitely feel that. Like, in Hong Kong, my family is just like, oh, she's really Western and liberal. She always speaks her mind. I'm like, they're like, we're not sure we like that, you know? They're, they're just like, um, you know, she does all this activist stuff. Who, what is it for? Like, why is she trying to make a point? Um, you know, and it's just, she should just um, keep her head down and do something that's worthwhile. Um, and even growing up, I had a lot of, um, woman figures around me being like, girls shouldn't act this way, girls should be quiet, um, girls should cross their legs, um, and the, it's this, these little things that really define our identities growing up as well, and perception that, um, you know, if you're an activist, um, you know, you're just an angry youth that, like, um... I don't know, believes in communism and things like that. And um, you drop out of school and then um, you're up to no good and your friends are just, they just don't do anything. 
and you just hold up signs and things like that. I think there's like a wide like misconception that of what is activism and that kind of old old school um idea that activism is just holding up a sign and protesting like you know about um politics like um male dominated politics and it's much so even reserved for men this act of like protesting or like young boys um and yeah I think my family are surprised that I do that um and you know it's very much being outspoken is not a celebrated trait for um you know a lot of Chinese women or I mean in Hong Kong we do have like a lot of um women in positions of power as well and um but I feel like in terms of like being political and an activist it's still not as accepted despite the political climate there So I'm going to circle back to the Asian Feminist Project, and I would love if you could tell me more about it, and how many participants you had in the first round. Um, I had six participants, and um, I guess the Asian Feminist Project is um, my master's research project, and I was aiming to... Well, I just I wanted to see how I could facilitate feminist conversations on a digital space, and in this case, I chose Instagram because um, I just love the I guess idea of like images and text and how versatile it is um, on Instagram as compared to other social media platforms that aren't as popular nowadays. I feel, um, and um, I guess. Um, how I executed it was I created 20 prompts based on my own lived experiences and yeah I just um I got people to complete these prompts and these prompts were based on um broad categories of identity intersectionality um ideas of how we perceive feminism and just um doing some activities with women and our families um and you know just um, interacting with everyday objects as well and seeing how that could create some sort of um, micro change that could lead to, um, you know, bigger changes. And yeah, I guess that um, feeds into um, an idea that's really talked about in, um, amongst like feminists of colour um, with reimagining feminist futures. And yeah, I think that's really important, especially after COVID with how it's disproportionately affected women and marginalized genders. Absolutely. I was so blown by how amazingly you put this project together. It looked beautiful and it was very, very meaningful. And I like how engaged you could be with the six participants through a digital space. Thank you. Aced it, girl. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I was curious to know as well, what was your biggest learning from the Asian Feminist Project? Um, I guess one of my um, biggest learnings was um, rethinking the idea of um, our movements or like what we're doing in our movements because I guess I've been um, active in like community organising for maybe five or six years now and um I guess like there's a lot of like um gatekeeping and elitist kind of um rhetoric going on in our circles and 
Yes, um, I guess what I learned was that a lot of people actually, you know, want to be part of these circles or want to be part of these conversations, but, you know, they're afraid and they don't know how to. They're afraid of making a mistake. And that was, um, I guess, the importance of, like, spaces that are forgiving and hold us accountable while we can grow are important. And that's what, that's my main takeaway from running um, Asian Feminist Project. Yeah. Is it still ongoing? Um, I would like to keep it going. I'm looking at um, possible funding and um, I would like to keep it going and have another round of participants to, you know, build more beautiful friendships (laughs) and um, build more kind of conversations. And I think people just really loved um, seeing the amount of, like, um, diverse kind of visual representations of, like, Um, people's experiences and narratives as well so I would really love to continue that I honestly I think it was very unique in this telling and I haven't seen something put together the way you've put it together so I think you definitely I do hope you get your funding and keep doing it because I'm super keen to see how it evolves what does home mean to you um Yeah, I guess um, thinking about even um, what I've learned from running my research project, I think it's just solidified the fact that I've grown up feeling like home is like fragmented, I feel displaced, and home is more like, um, you know, captured as an essence in like objects or like people around me, and it can change. I don't think I have a fixed idea of what home is, and... I can, I think the um, being in diaspora, I guess, um, builds you up for that. You don't know where home exactly is and you can't pinpoint that. For me, um, home could be in Hong Kong at my grandma's house or home could be here in Aotearoa with my um, friend circles and communities or even having potluck with like my family's like Hong Kong friends, um, family friends or... Home can be like the objects that um, someone has gifted me and I've brought them to like a new flat I'm settling in. Yeah. Wow, that's a really good answer. That's one of my favorite answers I've had so far. Because <laughs> I was um, just talking about it to a friend the other day and I was saying how I could be at home here in New Zealand and I could go back to Malaysia and be at home there too. And I was always thinking, was it one or the other? But now I realise it's actually both. And both are home. Yeah, um, I guess even from, from one of the prompts on my research project, I asked um, participants to reflect on um, this um, quote from a Bell Hook's essay. Should I read it out? Yeah? Um, and it says, at times, home is nowhere. At times... One knows only extreme estrangement and alienation. Then home is no longer just one place, it is locations. Home is that place which enables and promotes varied and ever-changing perspectives. A place where one discovers new ways of seeing reality, frontiers of difference. That's beautiful. Yeah, that was, um, that was really important for me to develop my project as well, to ensure I capture... Um, you know, even my own lived experiences of home and how it could just, um, it just keeps changing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it will evolve for me once I've 
maybe had children of my own and I don't know. Mm. I'll come back to that eventually. <laughs> but even so, like, um, I guess the connection we have with objects. I also thought about how um, we recently, um, my dad's car, which we bought the day we arrived in Aotearoa, um, recently broke down and it's as old as me and we had to say bye to it. Um, and I was just so sad. If, um, you know, I sat in there for ages and I asked if we could keep the plates and stuff. Um, and yeah, I just felt like, um, so attached to it because, um, you know, it was part of many road trips and things like that. And I just felt so connected to an object. And my mom was just like, I don't understand, you know, why you're so sad when we throw away things in the house. And it kind of just feels like, um, you know, all of those things represent a part of my life here. And when one of them is gone, it's like I have one less thing to hold on to, you know, for, um, you know, when I'm older. And I'm kind of, I guess, scared that I'll just be like all alone here once if my parents are like gone or they move back to Hong Kong one day. Um, yeah, and it's just that idea of, like, holding on to objects and, um, you know, that kind of, that was a common thing that appeared on um, my research project as well. A lot of people said they hold on to a lot of specific things because they just feel like um, it's an important part of them that they bring with them anywhere they go. Yeah, I've got a few things here that belong to my mum and dad that I hold, I treasure because I haven't seen them in two years. But I've got I, this, this this morning, as I was looking through some stuff, I had a, my dad's handkerchief. Because I don't know if your dad carries one, but my dad, I don't think he does anymore. It was a very old-fashioned thing to do, but he'd have a handkerchief in his pocket. He left one here one time when they were here, and I've kept it. And I'll, you know, it just reminds you, right? You just touch yeah. it, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is such a nice, lovely feeling. Yeah, I have a box of, um, I guess, like, mementos from, like, my grandparents as well, and especially my grandma uh, and grandpa um, on my mum's side. My grandpa bought me a lot of toys before he passed away when I was in primary, and I guess every time I look at it, I can't remember how he sounds like or, you know, what um, it feels like to be around him anymore, but I look at that and I'm like, oh, he really loved me and he gifted me these things when I was younger and that's that and like photos are all I have to remind me of him and I guess I'm gonna take those wherever I go as well oh that's so sweet <laughs> nearly teared me up with that one <laughs> um, and I did pop this question in here but I feel like I don't know who had a good lockdown Helen really <laughs> how was the COVID-19 lockdowns for you um I guess I did um, talk to people that enjoyed lockdown. It's crazy. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. I've been on Zoom calls and stuff and people are just like, oh, it was really nice to take take a break from everything and it was, I'm a homebody and things like that. And, you know, I totally respect that, obviously. But um, for me, I was just like super, I had a lot of, um, I guess I had cabin fever just being stuck at home. Mm. And, um, you know, I stay with my parents as well. So... The idea of like not having um, just like my own space to do things and like to take calls and just work um, was difficult. And I'm not sure if this happens to you, but I guess um, when I work at home, I'll be like, 
I'm going on a call now, don't um, come into my room for an hour. But then a few minutes later, while I'm talking to someone, my mum will be like, will knock on my door and be like, I cut you some fruit. <laughs> or like, um, here's some noodles. And I'll be like, thank you. But then she'll like yell through the door and be like, I cooked you food. <laughs> and it would just be like, I don't know whether to be embarrassed or to just accept that, you know, it's part of life now. And yeah, just the idea of like not having my own space really stressed me out and it kind of um, stopped me from um, a lot of my, I guess, stopped my creative flow and like I had a lot of writer's blocks and um, you know, my mental health wasn't the best during lockdown and I'm sure this is the same for a lot of people as well. My last question to you was what is next for you? Um, honestly, we talked about this whole COVID situation. I have no idea. I just got an exciting um, research role with um, AUT and um, I'm researching under um, the communications department and that's really exciting. So I'm hoping to do more um, work under, I guess, um, identity with like migrant communities, migrant women. Um, I'm hoping to continue with my projects, Migrant Zine Collective, I'm releasing um, a few zines with my other organisers and we're trying to build a new team as well for um, 2021 so you know um, just email me anyone. <laughs> and I want to do my light skin dark skin yeah, zine. Yeah I'm really excited for that and yeah I guess we're gonna in terms of Migrant Zine we're gonna have some changes as well for um, some for 2021, Jasmine will be um, taking a bit of a backseat because she's working full-time now. So that's really... I'm excited for her as well. And um, we'll be having a newer team of organisers, potentially, and just um, seeing how, I guess, we could change in terms of, like, the COVID situation and how we could create more zines or just seeing how we can engage next but um, in terms of right now, I'm working on um, a resource called Anti-Racist Soup with um, my friend Medis, um, who's a lecturer. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to release that. It's been, I have a lot of things that are in the works that I'm planning to release, but it's just really taken a toll on me this period of time and everything feels late and yeah, just in terms of the future as well, I'm wondering if I could, I should continue being in academia, doing research, um, and I guess I would really love to do more work in the field of um, just community-based research and finding ways of um, engaging people or, like, participants that, are, I guess, that create positive change or social change or you know, it can instill some sort of, um, you know, spark some conversations in people as opposed to traditional research. Yeah, which is often just like, um, you know, I'll interview you on this topic, this very important topic. People are vulnerable and they share their stories and then, it, yeah, they get re-traumatised and all they're left with is they're published in a publication and that's it. Like, you know, there's no ideas of, like, building a community, building groups that, you know, can offer support or sustain 
those kinds of um I guess topics or like conversations and that's what I'm looking into and what I would like to continue doing but I'm not sure how that would look like because I'm sure you know that um it's really difficult um you know as a woman of color to make it in academia or white institutions that's incredible Helen I'm so honored that you're here today with me seriously I just it's a privilege to have you on this podcast and just to know you I'm so so glad that I found you guys because it's y'all have changed my life seriously it's just been such an education for me and thank you so much yeah we're really glad that um, we found you too and we're doing this collaborative zine and I think the work you do is amazing too and more collaborations to come absolutely for sure um, we should um, do a little I guess call out for our zine everyone buy our zine (laughs) (laughs) coming soon guys yeah all right thanks Helen